Let's kick this bad boy off. Mike, check. One, two, one, two. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Long overdue. I've said multiple times it's been long overdue, but this thing is actually getting published and we're going live because I have none other than Mr. Raymond Hespin here in the house. Ray, welcome to the show again. I am so excited to be back. And it's so exciting to be in the, the same room with you finally again. I know we've been talking about doing another one of these again. Oh. We had so much fun last time that we, uh, did. we had to do we had to do a repeat. We we actually both got COVID just so that we could be in the clear and come here <laughs> right. to have to have this meeting. Hey, that's commitment. <laughs> yeah. So you're in Austin. We're in my hometown. A lot has transpired since the last time that we connected. There's always a lot going on in the industry, interpersonally with our companies and just kind of the, the velocity. So this is going to be freeform, straight from the gut, just kind of talking about an update on the state of the industry, the state of the game that we're in, man. That, that's that's what we're doing today. Yeah, no. And uh, number one, that mildly terrifies me. But every conversation I have with you is a, is usually a ton of fun. So no, it's looking forward to this. Well, first off, I got to compliment you on your footwear choice here. Those are some really baller socks. Can we can we get a can we get a lift on that? Can we get an ankle shot? <laughs> a scandalous ankle shot. Yeah, no, it's uh, hey, I try and show no ankles, but anyways. So you you got the business casual look going here. Um, travel, man. Let's just talk about that for a minute. Like travel has been donezo for some time now. As I think back, I've had maybe two. Uh, visits to my operators and to my team, but I've had zero, zero conferences. How are you feeling not having been on the road and out of commission for over a year now? I think, uh, I think there's a challenge. Like that's been a, a great avenue for me to like keep up on the polls, create like, you know, it's kind of like proximity to people. You have great organic conversations when you have space. Totally. Um, that's what a conference allows you to do. And I would say like an in-person conference, cause there's the time you're waiting outside the room, five minutes, 10 minutes that you just are sitting next to somebody. You're like, Hey, how's it going? And you get to strike up that, that stuff. So I think one of the, the biggest challenges have been, how do I create those avenues that I've just been addicted to and learning about the industry mm -hmm. that I, I have to like basically reshuffle my toolkit a little bit. And so, um, that's probably been the biggest challenge of it. I mean, I'd say navigating it half, half decently, but it's like, you got to go find the different routes. You talk to people even. It's crazy. It is. And if if the route is like more Zoom, I mean, that can be a little depressing. Zoom fatigue. Like we're past the point of even talking about Zoom fatigue now. It's there. It's real. It's, it's a thing. It's just fatigue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it is just kind of is fatigue on some level. I miss it. I do look forward to kind of getting back in the game more, seeing people having that connection. I feel like this is the year when travel is going to come back. If we're making some predictions, I'm saying this is the year, but it's going to be the second half there are some mm -hmm. conferences scheduled on the first half and i think it's going to be mm -hmm. challenging kind of reflexing yeah. that muscle and things aren't quite back to normal because i think what my experience is wanting to go back to how it was and instead it's going to go back to something that is like halfway or you know a quarter of what <clears throat> it was previously well so there's there's some things that are actually not bad like you know covid has done uh some economic cleanup probably and sure. I, there's some that are pretty terrible and some that aren't bad. I'll just give you a perfect example. Um, I booked my ticket when I was coming down here and uh, I was on American Airlines. Well, two hours before my flight, um, I get a notice that my fir first leg is going to be out. And so I'm going to miss my second leg. And there's no leg from 
Dallas to San Antonio that I was flying to. And so I was like, oh, crap. Like, and normally, if you remember pre-COVID, uh, it's like, oh, you got to hop on a thing. It's a $150 change fee. You got to go through this whole right. rigmarole. Right. I literally hit cancel and there's a credit in my account. And I was also able to book another airline today. Now, this probably will change. But I was able to book another airline that same day for a flight three hours later. And it was just like the seamless experience of the customer in order to to be competitive mm -hmm, again. Mm -hmm. That probably, you know, you wonder what's going to stay and what's going to disappear. Mm -hmm. But people have had to figure out how to up their games to, to delight the customer again. And so some of that's not all bad. And I think in conferences, it's going to be the same thing. It's like... What are the meaningful relationships and engagement things that we're really missing that we need to mm. double down on mm. um, that can't be accomplished remotely? And mm -hmm. so I think there will be some good kind of cleanup and shuffling of cards that people are recognizing the value of some things and, and really driving towards a more customer delight type engagement. I think you're right. I think some slack is being <clears throat> taken out of the market. Some inefficiency is going away. That's always a good thing. The market wins. When I think about what that means for, for us, Zoom is a great example. I can think of some conversations that were had along the lines of, you don't understand. This has to be in person. I We have to be face-to-face. And we're finding that a lot of those instances, it just wasn't true. Sales, you know, mm -hmm. the whole sales prospect, BDMs talking to an owner, mm -hmm. we've got to be on site. We've got to be in person. Mm -hmm. And now the next question is, well, could you have a salesperson remote, et cetera? I think there's a lot of great potential that's coming there. I'm thinking about other business owners, even outside of the industry that are using COVID to just kind of redefine that whole geo-local mm -hmm. relationship. We've started making... We've leaned into hires even further out, non-state side, et cetera. So it's been, in that sense, a net positive. But I also do think about the balance between going remote in a way that is really intentional mm -hmm. and in like a first-class way as opposed to being forced to do it for a period of time. <clears throat> and let's just talk about the debate between me and you. You've made a, you've made a bet, a significant <laughs> bet on, on local yeah. In a, I'm just going to say it, bro. Like it's, it's not a tier one market. It's not the Bay. Yeah, it's it's not New York city. <laughs> it's an opinion. It's not, it's not Austin. You got the mountains, you got the sunshine, but right. this is not typically what someone looks at as like a technology hub. <clears throat> big, big bet. I've made the opposite. I'm all in on remote and not because of COVID yeah. beforehand. Do you want to make the case for the bet that that you've made and give some give people some context on that. So yeah, so a lot of people know I uh, so we started a we we headquartered so we got employees all over the country, um, but we headquartered in Rapid City, South Dakota. Number one, I think there's great people there. It's a beautiful area. I've like I dated the country. I wanna I wanna live there. And so I think as people become more like you know life driven and what you want your life outside of work to be, like where you live is important. And we're seeing. Kind of that shuffle around as totally. more people are going remote. They're not hanging out in the same area of the bank. I always wanted to go live in X, you know? Right. So, <clears throat> so, but that being said, you know, I, I, so there's some things that I really have valued with in-person that I think is very, very difficult. Number one, there's probably like really, uh, there's really, really smart people out there that like can talk about the biological interactions of being proximity to people and the relationship building. Uh, that's one thing that I feel like oftentimes if I want to have a meaningful conversation, I want to have it in person, not because like, I just like I'm bah humbuggy. There's something there that happens when you're in person. That's, that's one thing, just relationships. But as we think about, as we think about like the, you know, in office thing, one of the things I've been such a massive fan of is that 
um, innovation can't be scheduled. Like so much can be gleaned off of interactions that happen outside before, after a scheduled meeting. Serendipity, let's call it. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I like the, I like the word choice in that. And you know how many times I will sit there and be, I'll be in the office. I'll be, you know, I'll sit there and be in the afternoon. I'll be having a beer or something. And I'll just be going and chatting with an employee and, and they'll be sitting there going, you know, I'm really struggling with this. And we will at that moment unscheduled, we were just having a casual conversation, go start whiteboarding and mm. solve something immense. Mm. And like, I have enough of those that I'm sitting there going, oh, there's just something here about being among peers and creating space to get creative, brainstorm that just, you know, nobody's going to schedule a meeting and be like, hey, do you want to have a brainstorming session for an hour about nothing? Mm -hmm. We're just going to create space for it. It's like nobody's going to. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, that that's the thing. But uh, I would say there's definitely some value in having some positions remote, like um, individual contributors uh, that have a well-defined role. Uh, the process is well-defined, you know, where that's not really required. Iteration isn't really required. It makes a ton of sense for remote. So going back to being intentional as opposed to just circumstantial as a life lesson in general, sometimes you just wind up somewhere. Otherwise, in other cases, it was strategically chosen. What does it look like to be strategic with being in office as opposed to I happen to live in this city? I hired here. Let's just talk about the obvious hiring, recruiting, mm -hmm. training. What is that? Have you had to lean in? more to really flesh that out with, with recruiting, for example, there's, there's this nexus between throwing up a job ad or, you know, I'm just asking mm -hmm. for referrals as opposed to doing actual outbound and the order of magnitude of the effort goes up. What have you had to compensate for in order to lean in and really own this, this strategy of being local? You know, so first of all, like, I think before even leaning in, I wanted to like ensure that I'm not I guess I, I've, I've been leaning on a lot of really intelligent people to make sure that I don't have a very, like that I'm, that I'm not missing something. Cause the reality is if, if the future of employment is complete remote, for example, like I, I need to know that and I need to lock it into my own brain to make a business that runs that way. How do, cause then we got to just figure out how to do some of this stuff. <clears throat> I talked with a really, really, uh, smart, uh, uh partner at a VC firm that I trust and I was just asking the question, I was like, you know, what does this look like? How does it look like in three years? Like, let's take away from the now and be like, let's fast forward past the immediate and go, what is it going to even look like in two to three years? I do definitely think there's going to be a segmentation of the population that's going to be more remote than not. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what defines a role that is viable for remote and what is a role that is not? And he said something really interesting. He said... You know, usually when you're startups and stuff like that, like those interactions in a lot of essences, like we still think are going to be like a lot of in-person interaction. That means travel or being in proximity to the people. There's too much that you catch via osmosis that when you're brand new and you're trying to do a pitch for a product that you've never sold before, like you're going to pitch that thing a hundred times and you're going to iterate. And then the person next to you is also going to hear what's working mm -hmm. and picking off. So you guys almost get to go through that journey together mm -hmm. and you just get to exponentiate it. Um, but that being said, he's like, you know, I, I do feel like those well-defined roles of you've got to do A, B, and C, and this is the metric that defines success. And here's the toolkits that you need to do it. And it's all pretty well-defined. There's going to probably be like a pretty big, you know, uh, uplift and in, in a retention of those positions just because um, you can do that. 
So, <clears throat> so that being first, but the strategic element is, you know, really it's, we're so still young in what we're doing. Like we have to be able to iterate so rapidly. Like we'll, you know, you take a, a I'll say a standard company. I'm going to throw up a quote, standard company. And I remember working in what would be considered corporate America. If you had an idea to say, try and attempt to save 10% of something, you got to run it through committee. You mm -hmm. got to process. You got to sure. go through here. Yeah. You got to run it through the boss, the boss's boss, all that. Take you six months. Like at a startup, could be a same day change. Mm -hmm. Like let's go and then you got to go build it. And, and so that's, that's the leverage of being a startup. <clears throat> yeah. And so then it's like, you know, just the speed is required so much faster than probably the, the giant aircraft carrier, um, you know, that that's running around. So, um, so there's roles that are very much iterative hmm. and that you have to iterate quickly and, and, and really glean off of the information of each other mm -hmm. very rapidly. And hmm. so that's the, that's kind of how I, I look at why it's such a, a powerful component that I'm, I'm bought in on the power of. Well, I don't know that there's a right wrong here. What I right. do know is that whatever the strategy is, you have to own it and lean in. That's what I'm persuaded of is that mm -hmm. it's easy to be circumstantial. Well, I just started the company here in Austin. Right. So I'll just hire in Austin uh -huh. and I, I have an office, so I'll, I'll do it locally as opposed to saying, this is really the bet that I'm making and working around it. You know, us being remote, we are focused on what makes that work. Communication yeah. is a huge yeah. part of that. I, I do want to kind of pivot and segue into talking about the team cadence for communication. Yes, you have serendipity, but serendipity is not an excuse for not having quarterlies. Serendipity is not an excuse for not having right. one-on-ones, et cetera. We have those structured communications and that's part of the bedrock of what we do. But I also pick up the phone and call people on a one-off basis, a check-in, a ping, <clears throat> you know, a sense of like, I'm here, I'm watching, I'm paying attention. I don't want anybody getting the impression that you can hide or that you're not really seen, you know? Mm -hmm. And when you're in the office, there's like, if you're looking at Facebook for, for four hours, mm -hmm. like it's going to be known. You don't have that quite parody on Zoom. Mm -hmm. I reflexively gag at the idea of like putting like screen tracking software on Ugh, someone's computer to watch gross. what they're doing. But you do want to be able to have a sense and a read and a pulse for contribution. And to me, that's more about the proactive sense that I can see that this person is pushing on their role <clears throat> and there is progress and there is engagement as opposed to I'm only getting things when I go to them and when I ask them questions. Are you trying to like separate in that? Cause this is a really interesting one. Are you trying to separate the effort from the outcome? Because effort's important, right? Like, and if you see somebody who's in an office and they're pulling late hours, they're mm -hmm. cranking, they're crushing, right. and maybe they're not getting the output. That's a different problem than somebody who's not getting the effort or not giving the effort and not getting the output. Is that kind of what you're, what you're trying to like do through some of that communication? Yeah, it certainly is related. And that's like such a fascinating dichotomy. I believe on the one hand, I don't expect anybody to work harder than I do because it's my company. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, effort is meaningful to me. And I don't want I don't want to encourage gripping. I don't want to reduce impact down to the number of hours that you worked. I think that's esoteric. Yeah. We're not, this isn't, uh, we're not laying bricks, right? Yeah. But at the same time, effort to me is about engagement and exertion. And it's not even effort around hours. It's effort around I'm in a meeting and I have 
opinions. I don't know if it's my disposition part to some degree. It probably is personality wise. Like I want opinions and engagement and some real conviction about what we're doing. And to me, that is a proxy for the kind of mental rigor that means that we're going to get things done. So it's, uh, you know, uh, I, I have, so I have battled this notion of like the difference. So I'm, <clears throat> we're very much an outcome driven business. Like totally. we say we hire adults, we will, we'll work with people to try and get them to the numbers. But like we try and, we try and manage our business by numbers. We try and define success in a role by numbers or what they need to do. Number one, that creates immense clarity that says, here's how I look, whether you're, whether you're a fit or not. <clears throat> it's not how many hours you cranking. It's like, do you get it? Mm -hmm. And how do we define that? Um, but the, the other one, that is an interesting one. Cause we ran, we've, you know, I've ran into this multiple times where we have somebody that's just spinning their wheels. And it's like, sometimes they're the kind of person that isn't going to raise their hand and say, Hey, I need help. Mm -hmm. It's like, they're just not getting it. Mm -hmm. So if we're a company that manages by numbers. Like <clears throat> those people could potentially be left in the dirt and, you know, getting their butt kicked. Whereas we've got to somehow separate those two of, of who are putting in the effort and not getting it versus who's not putting in the effort and not getting those numbers. But we do say like we hire adults. Yeah. I'm totally with you on like the screen grab and capture and all that sort of stuff. It's like, it's be, it would, I would hate to work for a company that does that. But I think what I'm expressing is that I'm looking to play ball when I, as the CEO, a portion, some of my limited time to have a one-on-one -on -one with someone, I want to see that we're playing ball and it's part of what I'm doing here in an interview as well. I want to be able to throw and see someone catch and throw it back. If it's yeah. a one-sided conversation, that doesn't provide or instill any confidence that this is really going to go well. And I do think it's related to the fact that it's a knowledge work scenario. Mm -hmm. It's a startup scenario. There's a lot of change. So if you're not committed to proactively understanding the context in which we operate, then it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to adapt to a changing situation as the company changes, but also just the fact that you personally need to grow in your role. There's a degree to which you need to figure it out. Do I aspire to have world-class training? Yeah, I want to have great training. I want to have great onboarding. But to a degree, you have to figure it out. So do you, so just out of curiosity, so as we're talking about this whole, like the strategy remote, non-remote, what do you think, like we've seen what's happening in the tech sector. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen in the property management sector? Mm. We've already seen the big shifts towards remote and offshore. And it's fascinating to me to see the motivations. The talk and the push and the trend is there. Sometimes the motivation is a broader talent pool. I want to have at or better quality talent at a, at a great market adjusted wage in a different market. I can see that. That's attractive to me. Sometimes it feels like I'm trying to pay as little as possible to squeeze and pull as much money out of the business. Can run a spreadsheet on that. I can see what's compelling about that. That doesn't turn me on as an entrepreneur and building the kind of company that I want to run. But there's obviously margin and gains to be had there. So the trend is there. I think it's about the vision that people have for it. A lot of people get in taking baby steps, working through an agency. Mm -hmm. That's not my preference. I think a direct hire is still the way to go. Um, but yeah, here's what I'll say. It was Bezos that said, your margin is my opportunity. And I think that has inspired a thought 
around a long-term strategy of raising prices and lowering costs. And I do not believe that that is long-term strategy. I believe that's a near-term profit optimization strategy, which will allow you for a period of time to suck out more money and have a great mm -hmm. lifestyle. I don't believe that's a long-term strategy, raising prices and lowering labor costs. I, I believe that that fundamentally threatens your ability to deliver value. And so the lens and the filter of uh, let's say a re resident benefits package to improve our revenue per unit so that we have more margin so that we can deliver a greater quality of service so that we can take more market share so that we can be more stable and really lean in to what we do and innovate. That's a turn on mm -hmm. for me offshore as just a, a net way to pay people less. Doesn't do a whole lot for me, but that's just me. Right. It's it's looking at a, at a shorter term. I think I think what's kind of interesting about it is the moment you, and I think you've already like leaned into this on your company, and like I think it's I think you were thinking ahead of a lot of people. This has probably not been a painful transition for you. Yeah. No COVID. Business. COVID had no change. You know, but it actually does sit there and go. Well, what's the compelling? What's the compelling effects versus having uh, stateside versus not if it's all remote? Um, so that, that's a, that's a really interesting one that, um, uh, you know, for me, I like, even if we get the company, normally we at least get the company together. Uh, we've got employees all different places. Um, we usually get them together once a year, at least we try and do like, we decided, uh, the beginning of 2020, we're going to do it twice a year. We got done zero times a year, but nice. it, but there's, there's value in that. And so it's, is it, is there a proximity? Is there a time zone thing to where it's like, you can still create those and that becomes the advantage. Hmm. You, you know, one thing I've become a, an immensely like, uh, like just true believer in is like building trust between like people. Like that is it. If you can trust each other, mm -hmm. that says you're not going to be the person that you know is doing this to undermine me. You're not going to do the person that's trying to climb over me in corporate. You're doing this because you care. Like man, like that foundational level allows for much more meaningful mm. conversation. Mm. And so. And so that's the, that's what honestly, like part of it is like, is the ability to potentially build trust. Maybe that's still the reason why to, if you're going to do remote, it's just allowing those travel and build meaningful, uh, trust between people. I always joke with my co-founder, like David, uh, I said, you know, the, the great thing about us is I can have a knockdown drag out with you or UI. And we both know there's nothing behind that, but care. Mm. And it's like, Huge. and boy, like you can take that and sit there mm. and not like be going, well, I'm, I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out of here. This is the worst. Like you just never have to do with it. But like, you can just like when you're needed, you can deliver that hard piece of information or receive that hard piece of information mm. because you have that foundational level. So it's kind of like layer onto that. I, I think that's potentially the thing that still makes it compelling to keep people in proximity, at least in the States. But otherwise, it's... I agree with the premise. I, I wasn't going to connect that to stateside versus not. But of course, I couldn't agree more with the premise. I mean, I think as a manager, you always have to have all of the tools in your toolkit. And sometimes it's a carrot scenario. Sometimes it's a it's a stick scenario and you mm -hmm. lean into both. Somebody does great work. Reward that. Incentivize it. Right. And if you have problems. You got to address that too. Sometimes you have to have the public hanging, you know, sometimes you need to really make sure that you're enforcing and providing clarity around what unacceptable behavior looks like as illustrated and manifested through a specific personnel situation. Mm -hmm. No, I think that you can still absolutely do that, whether it's remote or stateside, but the trust thing that you mentioned is so true. And I don't know about you, but I find that there are some scenarios 
where I can sense that I've gotten past a certain emotional kind of barrier and there's a little bit more access, a little bit of a higher fidelity conversation. And there are other scenarios where folks are a bit more guarded. Mm -hmm. They're a bit more mindful of the boss kind of subordinate yeah. dynamic. And that takes wisdom and time to, to navigate through. I think it's related to this conversation around, is this a family or mm -hmm. is this more analogous to a sports team? Mm -hmm. We've talked about this dichotomy before. I've communicated, I'm on the sports team side. You don't family fire family members. At least I haven't. I don't aspire to. <laughs> on a sports <laughs> no, team, you. you take people that you love and you enjoy and you have great rapport with, and you'd really just love to, to stay in connection with this person and you fire them because you have a salary cap and because you're trying to win the game and somebody else came on the market. It's mm -hmm. much more dispassionate. Is it inhumane? <clears throat> no, because there, if there was a common understanding of what the team goal and aspiration was on the front side. So setting those expectations, I think is a hundred percent kind of the, the foundation for being able to operate in that paradigm. What are your thoughts? Where do you come down on that? And how do you navigate that from a bumper sticker to something that people really understand and feel? So I, uh, I'll say that you can still have trust and, and still let people go. Absolutely. Like, so, and, and this is, a, I'll, I'll tell you to my, to my own discredit, this has taken a little while to learn. I've had a phenomenal mentor and coach, like really probably beat this into me. And I've gotten to see how sometimes when I, when I have a team member that I'm really struggling, like connecting with, it's like, there's a foundational piece that's missing that if you don't get that solved, then you can't build on top of it. And you wonder why you can't build off on, on top of it, right? So um, so I used to be very much team, like I'm here to do a job, everyone's here to do a job, we're not friends. Like, you know, and I probably was way more on the spectrum of that than I probably should have been. As time has gone on, I've realized how hard a startup can be or just some certain roles can be. And it's like, you build meaningful connections and it's like, you know, I'm here for you. Like you're here for me. Mm -hmm. Like there's bonds built into that. That totally. being said, I do like the team element. Um, if somebody drops out, it doesn't have to be somebody gets let go or somebody quits or somebody leaves. If there is a hole in the line, whatever it is, the rest of the team fills in and knows they've got to, and that's how a team operates. Um, so I, I definitely have moved from, I'm definitely not like a family, but I have built, I've, I've really believed in having meaningful relationships or become more into building meaningful relationships. It takes time. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of bought in on that. That being said, like, <clears throat> you know, I, I would, I would like to say, you know, most of the employees, even the ones that, you know, don't, don't work with us or, uh, anymore is like, they know that I still care about them. Like, that's like the big thing that I like want people to know, even if it doesn't work out, I care about you. And sometimes my actions, even after the fact, I've, I've helped multiple people get roles after property mail, like sitting there and just like, you know, cause I care about you. You can still have trust and say, it's not a good fit. Um, and so that's really, I don't know. I'm just kind of some examples there, but yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. My sister sent me a snapshot of a personal handwritten card she got from a CEO at a company where they had a round of layoffs and she was let go. And her response to that was like, screw you. This is a joke. And I think that's the dichotomy that we exist in as entrepreneurs is needing to be our own biggest critic, not getting high on our own supply of the team morale messages that we're sending out and realizing that when you fire someone, 
and you let them go and that ha- the impact that that has on their life, you likely are severing a relationship. You likely are creating a scenario where there could be some acrimony and you got to be okay with that. And to me, the sports team analogy, it that's not about affirming a transact, a purely transactional nature of the relationship to the exclusion of any meaningful life relational components. It's about acknowledging common shared purpose mm. that is bigger than the two of us. It's bigger than the two of our dynamic. It's something that we mutually participate in, hopefully. And that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> yeah, of what does it take to actually get people to care? What's in it for me? If I'm working at a at a below market wage for a crappy company with a crappy leader that's trying to suck every nickel out of this company, there's no there's no we. There's no common shared purpose. It's you and your exploitation of me and you know how long is it going to take me to find a better offer? So that idea of the aspiration of everything we talk about a company vision, yeah. a three-year vision, core values, there is so much that is undergirding and that that is predicated upon in terms of the the velocity of the company and how it can benefit the team members either in terms of it could be anything from equity to uh, great compensation, to great benefits, to career growth and trajectory. You, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships, or it could be individualized. You specifically, John, Sally, Sue, are showing a ton of promise, and I'm going to mentor and I'm going to groom you. You can back into that a number of ways, but there has to be some kind of a promise to make it a we team scenario. And this is no different than thinking about being on a team that is in the running and has a shot at a championship versus a team that is effectively one giant tax loss scheme for the owner and that you know you're going to lose this year. I mean, I think that that's the difference in the nexus that, that that's relevant for me. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I I agree with a lot of what you say. You know, the the big thing is, you know, there's kind of like two real levers that people can benefit from. There's the financial growth. And then there's the personal growth mm-hmm. and you have to ensure that they're, they're getting something there that is more than, you know, there's brown grass everywhere. I, I think I heard like a great comment, like everybody's going to forget it, but there's brown grass everywhere, but at least enough that it's compelling enough. They sit there and they go, if I leave, then I lose this. Mm-hmm. And so if it isn't the financial and you don't have the equity or you don't have any of this stuff, then it should be the personal. People can be addicted to that, right? I'm, I'm a perfect example of one. Last time we had a podcast, I would call that Ray an idiot because <laughs> he, he just was. Um, and that's because like I'm addicted to the personal growth that Absolutely. I get doing this. It's the high. Um, but, you know, and so that's what actually makes me just not really, you know, give a give a hoot about the money part. It's like because, man, this is this is what I want. Well, the, money my, com- the money comes yeah. when you're pursuing that. Yeah. Yeah, it should. Right. For for everyone. But so learning on somebody else's dime and somebody else's experience is a challenging part of the job. What I find the recurring experience that I have is that I'm in a perpetual state of being a white belt, of being an amateur in some ways, even though I accrete and I grow and I accumulate all of this experience, my aspiration keeps me up against kind of the bleeding edge of what is possible. Mm -hmm. And so I always to some degree kind of don't know what I'm doing, at least in some meaningful areas. And sometimes that results in breakage and mistakes. I mentioned my sister. She got let go. Because, why? Because they had a forecast that didn't come true. And they had to adjust and let some people go. 
what does that what does that look like or feel like for you knowing that these are people with families Mm -hmm. with kids with futures hopes and dreams and they're spending more time at work than they are with their families that's just a basic reality of of how work works and they chose to invest that with you Mm -hmm. and a bet you made may have negatively impacted then what does that what does that feel like and how do you carry that as a founder so you know i was i was actually i wrote down a note about uh, the powers of pressure um and you know the difference between that and stress and that's like that's such a great question i i can tell you the thing that has caused my and this is anecdotal but the thing that has caused like my personal forced my personal development is pressure like that is one of the things. So the, the thing I would say probably about any property mill employee, we don't hire people that nobody else would hire. <laughs> like, you know, I, I feel confident that everyone that came in the door is mm-hmm. a high caliber individual and mm-hmm. they can go get a job. They had so, options. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, we don't pick, we don't pick bottom of the batter, barrel people. And I'm really proud of, proud about that. But that being said, that's what keeps me up at, at night um, is like, if we're not meeting, it's actually the pressure that I'm letting the entire organization down. They have aspirations. Some of these people want to develop and managerial capacity. They want to grow. The only way you can do that is grow the company. Mm-hmm. I got tons of those people. And so if I'm not achieving that, then they don't get that. And I'll tell you, 2020 was just like, it was, it was hard on everybody, right? Um, but that was what really sucked for me is like all these things, these people are sitting there going, we're going to get to do what? Oh my goodness. Like I'm excited Mm. and I'm not able to deliver that. Now I know it's not an I, um, but I'm the head of the, I'm the head of the ship and that's kind of the way it falls. Mm -hmm. And, and that weighs very heavily. Or if we have an employee that I, that I always thought could make it and they didn't Mm -hmm. like that weighs on me because that was a failure in the organization to to Mm -hmm. support them. So uh, that sort of pressure, like, so if you talk about like what causes immense personal growth and why I think what you call startups or, or early stage companies are such so much fun is because they apply so much pressure to the role. Mm-hmm. Like, as I think about, you know, my, my jobs that I've had, it's like, <clears throat> here you go. Um, it's already been set up for you. You got this role, this job, mm-hmm. and it's already been defined. Here's what your numbers are. They should be all hittable mm-hmm. um, because we hit them last year, mm-hmm. and this is how you hit them. Mm-hmm. Just keep doing that and maybe make minor adjustments, mm-hmm. right? Like that is that's not much pressure, man. Like I, I remember when I was uh, working at some companies, like I had phenomenal experience prior to prior to property melding operations, but um, the uh, it wasn't it wasn't hard to be a winner. Like, but now throw you into something where it's like, we don't know how we think this might work. We need one of these to work. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to work because if we don't, then we can't, you know, raise this money or we can't get this staff increase mm. or we can't move it in this mm. building. Like, can't do this. Now go figure it out. Like, pressure, man. And uh, so pressure is so phenomenally healthy. I think the pressure is a privilege, baby. It, it is like you don't you don't get it everywhere. And it's so learning to appreciate, and there's a difference, right? Pressure's byproduct is stress. Stress is very unhealthy. You know, there's tons of science on like what it does to the body and everything. But pressure, if you learn to love it and appreciate it, and that's like what you, that's what personal growth is. And so if you really want to grow somebody, like it's kind of how I thought it's like, all right, like let's find ways to apply pressure. Anyways, I know I kind of roundabout way of, of talking about it, but the, the pressure for, for me giving everybody those opportunities that they mm. crave to do and part of a startup and be part of a journey mm-hmm. 
is immense enough to make me go, you know what, I'm screwing up on this, or I've got a problem here and I don't know how to solve it. How do I go do it? Like that is what creates my my continual like the growth. Balance. Yeah, growth. And as we talk about that, it sounds like, and it's easy to reduce that down to hard skills. There are a variety of hard skills, but let's talk about some of the soft side of things. Let's talk about the difference between vision and bullshit. Oh man. Let's talk about the degree to which <clears throat> belief and your ability to sell something that you both sincerely believe in and you also, because you understand risk, know has a decent chance of not happening. How do you balance that? How do you balance that without not, without not feeling like a fraud, but also feeling like you're doing everything you can to believe it in order to make it happen. This isn't this isn't Oprah. This isn't Soul Sundays. We're not going to talk about manifesting it per se. But there is an element at which your belief <clears throat> does result in it happening or not happening. And that's kind of hard to describe what exactly is going on there. So first of all, I think it's like really difficult to lead a group of people and have them bought in on anything if you're not genuine. Like, I just don't think it's possible. Um I do have like, I've always had like a vision of this company and I, I will tell you the thing that says like, people like, why do you like, when do you get like, you know, there's a whole bunch of questions about like, how do we run this business? How do I think about when I'm done? Everything else like that. And I will tell you when it comes to like solving like the maintenance problems, I said, if it's not us, then who? Mm. And somebody will eventually do it, but say it's 10 years. Like that's what we'll be that that will be our legacy that we could have fixed something we chose not to. Mm -hmm. That is powerful to me. Like, I I love that. So so getting actually crystal clear on the vision of your company like is something that probably, I'm I'm not even kidding. I'm up here in S San Antonio, like refining some of the product vision stuff mm -hmm. to get it like mm -hmm. clear to where we can start communicating that better. Because if you want a team to run super well, or at least this has been my my experience and learning is you have to give them a lens to look through and make their own decisions. If everybody in the organization runs like the military and it's like, you wait for orders, mm -hmm. you ain't going to move fast enough. You need to be able to give them the tools, which is what I consider lenses that they should be able to go and make decisions on. So for example, um, I'm, I'm not going to drop our vision statement here yet because it's, it's, it's under final. But uh, one of the things that we have is like our mission at Property Mail is to deliver a positive maintenance experience while intelligently improving efficiency and oversight. Sounds like you could just put that on a bumper sticker, right? <clears throat> but one of the things that we're even doing is like we actually look through everything that we're doing in terms of positive experience. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean for the resident. It means for the resident, the owner, the property manager, the maintenance coordinator, the vendor, the technician. Like that's what a positive maintenance experience is. Um, efficiency is like, could be people efficiency, time efficiency, cost efficiency. Um, oversight is, you know, predictability, knowing what's going on, stuff not falling through the cracks. Like, but we're able to basically break down in our organization and say, out of every email that we send out, how are we talking about positive maintenance experience? How are we talking about efficiency? How are we talking about oversight? When we're doing business development lead gen, how are we talking about these three things? When we're closing a deal and demo, how are we talking about these three things? When we're onboarding, how are we making sure they're set up for these three things? When we're in account management, how are we making sure that they're experiencing these three things? In product, how are we making sure that we're delivering product on these three buckets? Like that is the only way to like mm -hmm. make mm -hmm. a statement way more powerful is to find a way to really like inject it in your company. And that way you empower employees to sit there and go, how's this, 
fall in with our mission. Mm-hmm. Like if it's such a discipline, it allows people to sit there and go, and if they call it out, number one, applaud them if it's accurate. Uh, number two, sit there and encourage it more. And that's what allows team members to like almost be self-guiding machines to hit plus or minus 10 degrees of that true north to like go. Anyways. I think this is the heuristic around core values to ask, how do you know if a core value is working? And I think the answer to that is that it's working when it's useful and it's clear that it's useful when it's being invoked. One of our core values is own the outcome. Mm. That means take it all the way home. That means knowing what the last mile means. Mm -hmm. That also means choosing your clients carefully and scoping the engagement so that you're not writing a blank check because you know you're going to deliver the check that you wrote. All of that in some, if it's working, is utility. Like here is a functioning mental framework that helps me do my job and therefore it's Mm self-serving. I'm not invoking it out of some do-gooderism or because my boss told me to. This has been demonstrated to me how to be effective at me accomplishing my job and therefore I'm invoking it out of my own self-interest. That to me is palpably what it feels like to see core values working. And some of our core values meet that threshold. Others do not. But I think it's a lot simpler than people think about how to get core values and the idea of like picking them of like, uh, in large part, a, a, they're already implicit, right? Like everybody has core values that are unpublished yeah. and some of them are really shitty and you wouldn't want them. You wouldn't want to put them on a poster, but that is the core value right. at the company, you know, uh, of avoid confrontation. Right. That's somebody's core value that at, is, at, at uh, some company. <laughs> that, that could be. Yeah. You know, I, I had this described so succinctly by so CEO, super du- awesome dude from South Dakota, sold his company when they were generating like 300 million in revenue. Just insane. Like amazing. took it from, yeah, amazing. And he said, one of the things about core values, like you can, o- you almost always know what your core values are because you as the CEO are establishing the core values mm-hmm. and you're hiring people that share those same things that are important to you. Mm-hmm. He said, the easiest way that I was ultimately able to determine what my core values are is when you had something that just annoyed the shit out of you about an employee, like them not doing something, them not owning the outcome, Mm -hmm. that is actually your core value. And he's like, I actually found a way to sit there and quantify what are things that are so critical to me. Yeah, right. And that's what he defined the core values. And then how do you take that and make that pass? He actually um, put him into his annual reviews of how you exhibit each of those core values. So you're ranked, your raises are on them, mm. everything. Mm. They hire based on the core values. Mm. Like, so I think like step one is figuring out the stuff that like th- getting past the sticker, like, and we we went through this process, like our, our core values in terms of words were accurate, but we had to like really define what they meant. <clears throat> and And like how people can personify those and then you can start figuring out in your organization, how do you like ensure that from the time they come in the door, mm-hmm. they are the person that exhibits those. How do we 
continue to validate and make sure that they keep exhibiting those? And how do we reward people who demonstrate those at a very high level? Now, this is a really interesting heuristic of what do I, as the owner, what are the friction points for me? I can see the value in what that would surface. I can see the honesty. Let's say that I can see the honesty of what that would surface. I also think of it another dynamic, and that is that there's a person that has a role and a home at the company, but they cannot be my direct report. Mm-hmm. I would be very unhappy if they're mm-hmm. my direct report. I'm not going to get the juice that I need to go into a meeting and to leave energized and charged and to know that I spoke and the words that I said that were missing a fair bit of context will be translated into action because this person has the juice. I don't know how else to say it, but there's somebody who's who's not going to give me that and they shouldn't be my direct report, but they can still have a home in the company. How do you think about a cap out per se of how much growth somebody is going to have. And maybe they're going to stay at a lower level. Does everybody need to be on the eventual CEO track at a long enough time horizon? (laughs) Or are you okay having folks that are going to have some level of growth, but they're never going to become a manager and they're just going to be a great uh, IC individual contributor. How do you think about that? So first of all, like one of the things that I recently went through, like I wouldn't say super recently, but I went through the interview process really, really smart candidate of a particular role. And honestly, I was like, I just, I just don't think I want to work with them. Mm. It gets kind of strange. Like it was just interpersonal. And really it comes down to, it's either that or trust. Like, can we build a trusting relationship? And if we can't, then I've just learned through my bumps and bruises that, you know, that we, you know, probably just shouldn't work together. Mm -hmm. Um, like you said, they could be in a different home where they can build that trust or they can build that in like, and that's a perfect place. They can still align with the core values. And so it's kind of separating those, you know, one of the things that I always say, like people look at me a little weird when I say this, like I have a ceiling, I don't know where it is. Mm-hmm. I have a ceiling. Um, now what determines that ceiling is, is something that is aligning what my job's purpose is and what I enjoy. There was a great, conversation I had, uh, with, uh, somebody really, really smart guy. And he said, you know, people that enjoy 75% of their role will develop 300 to 400% faster. Like, you know, when we think about a, uh, a software company, like you have to go exponential, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and so the thing I'm really looking for is who loves doing what they do. Who can I keep applying more pressure and who keeps growing? There's a there's an exercise called the nine box where it's like, basically, you're familiar with the mm-hmm. nine box. Yeah. Basically, you have a grid of um, what is their potential and then what is their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's, a, there's a separation there. And basically, what I look for in certain team members, like, number one, how can you have an honest conversation about where you're at? How do we talk about those numbers again? Mm-hmm. This is the expectation of the role. Are you excelling at it? That means you're a high performer. The question is, can I keep giving you more mm-hmm. and you continue to execute on that? That's a high potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think having those honest conversations with people, but the most important thing is actually realizing that they're happy in what they do because they will grow a lot faster. I've done, I've made the mistake before putting somebody in a spot that they don't like a large portion of the role mm-hmm. and they struggle. They probably even had the potential to be a high performer, but I didn't put them in a scenario or a situation where they could be. Mm. Um, but anyways, I think it's a long and a route uh, answer. That's the weight of management is to figure that out and to know, you know, is this a situation where we can ameliorate it by pivoting to a different role or 
am I being delusional? Right. Or am I tolerating something that I shouldn't be tolerating and being conflict avoidant by just not cutting ties now? And that's wisdom. That's judgment. I, I would even say, too, like one thing I learned, I, I, I love believing in people to a fault. Like, so I'm usually I have more people in the interview process than I am because it's taken me some time to learn. It's like I'm just like, oh, will you work hard? Do you, are you passionate about what you do? Can I sense this energy from you? Yeah, I'm like hired and it's like you know it's not like necessarily the best way now the way i put some guardrails on there for myself i i actually build core competency type structures strength weakness um mediocre and so i actually have you know i built it into my own process where i can kind of safeguard some of my inadequacies but um but anyways most importantly can can they succeed and that's hinged on do they want to do the role and then how do you give them incremental type responsibilities to do that? And just see. And you, sometimes you butt up against the cruelty of the Peter principle, which is the idea of being promoted to the level of your incompetence. You've done so well at level one, level two, level three. Well, of course, we're going to promote you to level four. And level four was one step beyond your zone of competence. And now you're out. You could have ridden it out at level three and had a great career. Yeah. But we and you, you know, it's it's a mutual dynamic wanted you to keep going. And that can be a cruel thing to put on people sometimes, I think, when you have somebody that really is content and doing good work where they're at. But startup culture and dynamics does tend to kind of have this idea of you figure it out, you learn and you grow. And it's like it's like aggressive upskilling. Sometimes there can be misalignment. Sometimes you have folks, here's here's the red flag for me. When I see someone that is making an ask that is clearly disconnected from contribution and they're smart enough to know it. Mm. Like I've given them numbers, I've given them metrics and they're going sideways, which means they're doing a great job. You know, everything's mm -hmm. okay. Everything's great. But there's still an ask for either more responsibility or more salary or more raise. Those are where challenging conversation comes into play. And I want to segue to talk into uh, to talk about a corollary concept and that is incentive and variableized based compensation. We've all read about it at face value. It's exciting. You know, you get to manage the downside and the upside with greater parity. It's more accurate rewarding of the actual contribution mm -hmm. and yet unintended consequences. Um variables that you can't see what kind of engagement have you done with that? And do you have any, have any thoughts and, and feedback on either what you've done or what you're considering in this way? So there's uh so number one, it's like, how do you, it's, it's actually kind of a challenging dynamic. I think you said something really, really good there, which is like incremental responsibilities. Like that is ultimately what compensation should be tied to. Like, I think a lot of people, you know, we set their annual review. I am getting a, you know, 3% raise because, I've been here a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, why? Like, so how is your value increase? So I'm, so I'm, I'm a fan of like, if we're a company that has to grow, it's like, we need to grow your responsibilities as part of your compensation. I, I love the performance based stuff, but there's really two track paths. And I think this is a mistake that I've made in the past that we're trying to right the wrong on is like, you have the individual contributor path and creating that as equally or not as much as important as the managerial. Mm -hmm. um, some of the times, a lot of people think, well, if I manage people, then I can 
make more and do more and grow more. It's like, you've got to create pathways for both, which means your compensa compensation structure has to have pathways for both. Cause mm -hmm. you want some people in an individual contributor. It's like, you kick ass at that. Like go keep yes. doing that. Yes. Or they might be somebody who's exceptional at managing people. And like, you want a path for that too. Um, <clears throat> the big thing around like, so one of the things I think it was square who had this and we're trying to figure out how to like continue to better do it is like, making compensation less subjective and more objective, mm. right? If you say a, if you say a percent, right? I was, I was in corporate America. Like I got the percentage increase annually. Why? Like, why did I get this? Like it just was, that's because what it was. Um, Square actually did this thing. And so it's completely a subjective. <clears throat> Whereas, um, you know, where I've seen, so Square basically wrote on it is like, basically there's pathways and there's very clear metrics and numbers that once you achieve, that's when you go up the next tier. So you take, for example, um, and I'll just, I'll give an example, like a, a support person, right? If they answer so many tickets, have a great amount of satisfaction, their average response time is X, their volume and throughput mm -hmm. is Y, mm -hmm. like that's when you move to the next. So that way the employee knows exactly what do I got to do to make more money. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> throwing that performance, we, we created immense alignment in our organization this year around two key metrics around growth and retention. And so we basically made performance driven all the way down to, you know, middle management around two key metrics and their contributions to it. That's created a bunch of alignment, but I'd love to find ways to make, to make it safe to where people aren't starving if stuff is going all to hell, because sometimes it's outside of their control. 2020 is a perfect example of that. But at the same time, they really care that their team is marching in the right direction that's mm. going to contribute to the company's values. More, so more upside-driven rather than uh, a downside fear-driven paradigm. That's attractive to me as well. You mentioned hiring people that are solid talent, which means they have options. Mm -hmm. And you know what's interesting about talent with options is they're not looking to take some crazy risk on a salary that could, on a salary compensation model that could go down to 20 or 30 K. Right. That's called being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. If you have an appetite for that, you get your own gig. Yeah. It's a huge red flag for me when I see people engineer comp models that are intentionally met, meant to make the employee eat a lot of risk. Yeah. Big red flag for me, even in sales. And I get that there's a guy that wrote a book that tells you he did it and it worked out for him. God bless. <laughs> I'm not that smart. I question if other people are that smart. I question if other people have an organization that has that much momentum and pull in the market to get someone to make that kind of a bet. The reality is talent has options. They're used to having a hedge and they're used to having a great, a great salary. And I think that that's just something that you learn relative to how far you've gotten in terms of the level of the talent that you've worked with. If you've only ever worked with C-level talent, and when I say C-level talent, I'm not talking about somebody that does a bad job. I'm saying somebody that does a great job. They're an A player at that band of talent. But the reality is that there is a meaningful difference in the quality of whatever you want to call it, cognitive capacity whatever label you want to put on it, going from working um, fast food retail to a the, the C-suite at a large bank, you know, the, the caliber of individual that you're dealing with. And I know it for myself that I have not reached the ultimate final echelon of human capital 
But I feel like that's always an awareness kind of gap is what is my compensation structure likely to attract? Remove it from my company, but just <clears throat> if, if my comp model is set up to have me work with a person of a caliber of quality that is lower than what I need, that's counter, mm -hmm. that's really counterproductive. I feel mm -hmm. like there's, there's more self-awareness that can be had around what, what a, a given comp model is likely to attract. You know, there's, there's two, there's, so there's two levers of why somebody does a job, right? Like you even think about the entrepreneur, you started this probably because you could have went and got a job and had less stress and made more money. Right. So you're doing it for something else, right? And it's recognizing that in people. And there's, so there are two levers. There's the personal growth element, and then there's the financial element. Like a lot of the times, and they've done studies on this, like there's a certain point where people feel like they need to be, and they're just they're happy. And so you need to find whatever that is. Um, you know, like if you do any sort of like profit sharing or equity or options, like that can all play into the financial too. And people sit there and like, look at that together. But, you know, we've, we've been very fortunate in the element, not that we have like independently, you know, wealthy folks, like they want this journey and the growth that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to understand mm -hmm. the motivation of yes. people. Um, because sometimes we've stumbled upon some pretty incredible people that are just like, you know, I really just like this. I like the small, I like the scaling. I've done it. Um, and I really want this to be part of my thing. Now, if you do bring that person, are you prepared to give them the personal growth that they need mm -hmm. that keeps them hooked, that keeps them excited about what they're doing? Um, but there, there's the two levers, but I would agree with you in whole. And I, I think, you know, as a startup, you're sitting there going, how do I, how do I make sure we don't go under? Yet I need really great people. And so you have to get creative. And so that's where a lot of the performance-based type stuff, you can you can get a little bit more leeway with. If the company does really well, I can afford to do this for mm -hmm. you. You know, If the company doesn't do well, I can't. So, Regardless of what it rolls up to, if it's variableized comp or not, you are making a bet around the level of uh, experience and talent that you need. <clears throat> How have you thought about developing talent internally as opposed to buying it off the shelf we all know you add another buck and a quarter to a given salary roll you just you're jumping up an order of magnitude in terms of experience and that what you just articulated of working with someone that can say i've done this at double the scale that's very attractive mm -hmm. and it's such a different proposition yeah. than i want this and i want to figure it out and i'm hungry i mean i've, I've dealt with that i've dealt with talent that is so blindingly obvious that in five years, this person's just going to be a monster. Yeah. And they're a monster right now, but in terms of the skills, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. And so you got to figure out how much, how much learning can I afford to facilitate as opposed to needing the talent now? There, there's uh something super appealing. So, uh, I think it's blitz, blitz scaling by Reed, Reed Hoffman, Hoffman yeah. and, uh, uh, I forget the other gentleman who co-authored it. Uh, you know, they had a really good thing is like, there's a time to pull in people from the outside. It's like very ridiculous to expect somebody to succeed in something they've never done before or don't know how to do. And the cost or the blast radius of a failure is too much to the company. Mm. Um, so I think that's when you sit there and go, all right, you know, they were, they were, uh, talking about Facebook, uh, uh, Cheryl Sandberg, um, she's a former Google person brought in, like there's time to bring in execs and those execs can actually help build your next execs. But you need somebody who's done some of it um, is really, really helpful to do that. That being said, 
I am such a massive fan. Like one of the things that I've always tried to sell in our company culture and like hopefully we're able to make this a, a massive success for everybody that comes in is like your personal share price when you came into property mill versus when you left should be exponential. Mm. Like when somebody sits there and goes, I worked at property mill, it's kind of like, you know, uh, being a uh, one of the execs in Wells Fargo during the late 80s where everybody's like, they're all of our CEOs are from Wells Fargo during that time. Like I want that. I you want, want it to be marketable in your resume. I want everybody to sit there and go, I, like, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft, they're very great companies that if you rose through the ranks, Google, Facebook, um, like, oh, you were there when? Mm. I want mm. you. Um, so really trying to create more mechanisms around that that allow for that. We're not there yet. Um, but I love the story of when we can move somebody up and actually point to other employees and be like, do you see, if you do what they did, you can get what they got. Mm. Hey, quote, damn, that's a, it sounds pretty good. <laughs> I, I don't know that that's entirely unreasonable from my experience. When I think about pulling somebody into SAS that doesn't have experience with that, SAS is a great world to be in. Yeah. When you get on that track, the options that you have, and particularly in the B2B space, there's a massive amount of trajectory, but a lot of companies don't want to be your first rodeo. Yep. You know, they'd like to see that you had, some, even if it was a lower tier <clears throat> company, something maybe was a little bit more off brand. They want to see some level of engagement so that you understand the lexicon, the nomenclature, the dynamics that are specific to it. Um, so that actually does feel real and tangible that there is really a trajectory that you can start someone on at, even past the point where they graduate from the company and they move on to do something else. I think that whatever we're giving team members, the hope and the aspiration is always that the time that they spent here was formative and transformative. And the coaching aspect is part of that. The review aspect, a performance review, sp specifically the per performance review can feel a little bit more clinical mm -hmm. along the lines of objectively, these are the standards that we set. Hopefully if it's done well, there are some objective standards. It's not done on a whim. Um, so outside of that, what does the coaching component look like for you guys? What what are some some higher low points and maybe some of the coaching that you've experienced in your career? And how do you think about that dynamic of facilitating that conversation? Man, I will tell you the biggest transformational element of my life has had great coaching. So like that's something that like once you have that and you see how it can impact, impact you, it's kind of like, oh, well, now I need to figure out how to do this in the rest of the organization. Um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is like, you know, I, I actually, even though I was in construction materials for years before property meld, I can actually think of great uh, roles that I had that taught me a lot and were actually contributive to my success here. Mm -hmm. And vice versa, I can sit there and go, did I learn anything there? No. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can sit there and go, so you know, I want everyone to go through our thing to be like, I learned something here. Or I look at that as like, it set me up for success in my next thing or whatever. Um, but, you know, one of the things is I'm an engineer, like I'm a mining engineer, as you know, I joke about that all the time, but I'm a very systematic guy. So I've actually figured out how do I make development systematic? Like, how do I get real and honest with the person about what's required in their role? Where do they need to be? Getting everybody to acknowledge that. How do we bridge that gap? What does it look like if they get there? Mm -hmm. And sit there and like figure out how I help them along the way. Now I do it in a very formalized process, but my my coach and, and mentor uh, that's really done a lot, he just has it in his head. 
And he's like, I need to move Ray on this. Like, this is just an area. He's just not getting it yet. Mm -hmm. And I need to. And so that's what he does. Keeps putting carrots, keep doing nudges, keep doing things that get me um, going in that direction. There's a uh, amazing, amazing book. I gifted it a while ago called The Connector Manager, uh, if you're familiar with it. It's basically your four different management styles. Uh, you have your always on manager, which is like the person who did the thing really well and they become a manager and then basically tell everyone, just do what I did because mine was successful. Mm -hmm. um, they have the cheerleader, which is everybody great job. You know, that like just positive reinforcement. You got the coach. I think I'm, I'm hoping I'm not butchering these, which is like more like coordination, but do as I say kind of thing. <clears throat> um, and then you have the connector manager. The connector manager asks a ton of questions and really gears your brain on how to go out and solve your own problems. Mm. How, how do I equip you with the tools that you can go start equipping these, the experiences that actually allow you to go do this instead of me having to tell you. And I think it was Gartner who put it together. Uh, they, they basically discovered that that management style had a, and I don't know how they measure this, they're smarter people, but like a 20% uh, productivity improvement of an organization that had predominantly connector managers, which is pretty heavy throughput. Um, but anyways, thinking through those sorts of things, where are you and how do I not tell you what to do, but how can we do meaningful things, small blast radius exercise where failure is not the end of the world, mm -hmm. give you those opportunities, talk through it. What did you learn? How would you do it differently? And just allow them to like learn that way. Mm. And so a year from now, hopefully they say, damn, I hate the year like I do. Like I hate the year away from me that I have because I've gotten so much of that rounded out that I'm developed, you know, even in a year. So I find in most organizations, the bar is low enough that you don't need crazy hard skills to coach. What you need is time, effort, and intentionality. And sometimes that's really not what the owner wants. The owner is more in a phase of feeling like they want freedom. They want the lifestyle. And that is amazing. Who doesn't want that at some mm -hmm. level? But I think you've got to calibrate to the level of growth and change in your organization, your aspiration, your ambition. And that kind of maps to how active and aggressive you have to be in managing this thing. If mm -hmm. you're looking for asset value accretion, mm -hmm. you got to be in it. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm not I'm not smart enough to figure out how to cash flow, find and hire a CEO to just go run this and figure mm -hmm. it out at, at Lead Simple. I'm I'm here and I'm in the trenches. So the idea of spending time with other people, it can maybe be it can be a couple of things. And I'm I'm talking more about like the resistance of why not do one on ones mm -hmm. on a more frequent basis. It could be I don't like my people. <laughs> that happens, bro. And let's be, just be honest. I, I know I'm gonna have this meeting. I'm going to feel like they're not going to listen to what I tell them. I'm going to have to repeat it. And maybe they're going to be somewhat flaccid. It's going to be overall unenjoyable. That's a factor. Now that's data about like a personnel yeah, decision yeah, yeah, yeah. that you need to make. Um, it could be, I'm so busy. It could be, these are things I've heard. It could be, it's, it's boring. It could mm -hmm. be, I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. What I've, what I think and what I've experienced overcomes a lot of that is what is the intention? Is the intention to extract and squeeze more gains? Is it to flog people or is it to gain mutual understanding around a common shared goal such that this person is more aware of how to navigate closer to it, as are you? 
I walk away from my one-on-ones with a lot to think about mm. and a lot to process and a lot of distillation. And I hope and I believe that the people that I'm meeting with are clearer and better off for having talked about it, pre-gamed it, kind of scenarioing, scenarioing things. What do you think about as kind of the goals of what you expect to take away from one-on-ones on both sides? You know, if I could maybe even start by saying like the maybe the reason that I've gained probably such an appreciation for the aspect is actually because I've gotten hit with the baseball bat so many times where I sit there and I go, <laughs> yeah, they, they, I call it the humility baseball bat, uh, is actually sitting there being so surprised as the company grows and scales and being like, and the person was doing a job great, but then it grows and scales and so are the responsibilities and the roles and they're not able to do them. And I'm surprised. Mm-hmm. Somehow, mm-hmm. I'm surprised. So it was like a big realization that says, I have to prepare people for what's coming, Mm. not where they're at. The reason they're at where they're at, like, it's great. We should prepare them for where they're at. But once they're doing where they're at, we have to think, where is it going? So this all Mm. comes back to achieving the vision of the company, where you're going, and what are the things that are going to stop you getting there? And one of the biggest ones is going to be your abilities, people that, you know, your people's ability to execute. And how do you prepare them before So there needs to be a lens of what do they need to be better at rather than like picking them like what do you want to be better at? Mm -hmm. The way that I've started to look at this has been like, all right, so if you're going to stay at the top of the food chain of that particular department as we grow to 100 employees, Mm -hmm. 200 employees, 300 employees, like whatever that is, we start breaking down the core competencies and how they change over those roles. Now let's have an honest and meaningful conversation about where you're at. And usually what the way that I do it uh, that I found works really well is allowing them to grade me as the CEO. My responsibilities and roles need to change very much as the company grows. Where am I lacking? Where do I need to be better? And it allows the conversation, the dialect for me to help calibrate that says, no, I know you're giving me a lot of like high marks there, but this is why one of them is people development. Where are all the winners I'm producing? Mm-hmm. Where are all the ones that just can't, like they're all floating off and just they're going and getting large scale jobs. Like, um, <clears throat> but it's actually setting, it's aligning the people development with the needs of where the company is going to be. And so I, I see that as a function more of ensuring that we're executing and prepared to, because the last thing that, you know, the thing that just absolutely sucks is when you sit there and go, I got to bring somebody in now mm-hmm. because they're not there. Mm-hmm. I got the cultural issues. I've got, you know, people like frustrated. Why didn't I get this? Like there's so many things that if I can avoid that and create this, the the company that grows people and it solves the company's needs, boy, then it's like, then it's singing. Can you please handle that? Can you please put this in the blooper reels too? Why not? You need to. It's whatever, but like you're a, you're an extremely intellectual guy, but you're also incredibly likable. And to have watching you watch foam out of there, like says, this is the real deal, man. <laughs> All right. We're kick- kicking it back off with this uh, episode sponsored by Lone Star. <laughs> and we're let's, uh, let's pivot and let's talk a little bit about the industry, the, the space that we're playing mm. in. You know, I find that there's this ongoing conversation about consolidation and VC money coming in. And it, it feels like it's, just been played around and around and around. It's kind of boring to me, but it keeps coming up. Let's go there. 
Let's talk a little bit about industry consolidation. Some of the pl new players coming in this space, the potential ways that could change the dynamics and the threat <clears throat> that it is to the small business operators that are my, and I presume your bread and butter. Have you seen any real impact aside from another tech crunch headline about so-and-so raising 10 or $20 million to get into residential third-party management? Do you feel like that you felt or seen any of the, the, the impact of this uh, consolidation? So uh, I would say um, there's there's VC money going into software and then there's like VC money actually going into the asset ownership, right? which are two different things. But the uh, there's definitely for the, for the, uh, for the property management firms, we are seeing some more acquisitions probably than we have. So obviously we've got customers that sit there and go, <clears throat> I'm getting bought by X. How, how do we manage this? How do we navigate this? Um, uh, or, or it's our customers acquiring people, which is great. But we definitely are seeing more of that happen, probably than a little more M and A activity. Yeah, a little bit more M and A. So that that is probably indicative. And then we're starting to see more conglomerates propping up as well. So, uh, you know, I'm operating a property management business is very difficult. And the moment that somebody really gets that dialed in and locked out and says, now let's just throw money at this process. That's probably when I'll say we'll see some really serious movement, but it's a tough business. I agree. I think that ultimately if that happens in spades, it's not good for me or you. I mean, if, it, if this results in, you know, 10 years from now, there's 10 pro residential property management companies, that's not going to play well. That, that's not how I'm currently set up and that's not really who I'm rooting for. But I will say that in some ways, consolidation is somewhat analogous to taxation in the sense that when you raise or modify tax rates, the money is like water. Somehow the money that you're trying to tax it, it evaporates, it disappears. Mm -hmm. It's not there in the quantities that it was before those policies. Similarly, churn is the thing that doesn't get brought up as much. When you have these market consolidations, it's a, it's a conglomerate of units with individual owners and those can move, those mm -hmm. shift. And I have most definitely seen churn be an ongoing issue when there is consolidation and acquisition. And that's why there's clawbacks. That's why the deal is structured such that you minimize your downside in the event of churn. So I think that's kind of the underrated factor. It's not as straightforward as buying these contracts. You've got to actually hold on to them. And the greater the scale and the greater the speed at which you achieve that scale, the more eggs are going to be broken along the way. You feel me? Uh, so I'm in total agreement. That's actually a really good point. Uh, I talked to uh, somebody I'd consider an industry leader. And, uh, you know, it was one of the things that they talk about is because we got our, our, you know, our customers' customers, right? You know, the property management firms and their owners um, is that uh, there's like a ratio of uh, the amount of maintenance costs that an owner can experience in a year mm -hmm. against rent roll, right. that basically churn becomes exponential. And so really, if you think about it in that aspect, that that's like just a monetary thing. So I think the number that he, he said was like 10%. So if you have 10% in maintenance um, against the rent roll, annual rent roll, then your uh, rate of churn for that particular owner is exponential. Mm. So that's probably, and it probably makes a lot of sense, you know, in terms of if I don't feel like that property management firm or whatever is, managing my asset correctly, right, wrong, or indifferent, I'm going to go try somebody else. <clears throat> I think when there's change of ownership, 
that's when you have like major sort of discontinuities in service mm -hmm. or some mm -hmm. other things, mm -hmm. potentially some of those lost costs. I don't know necessarily those, but I would agree with you. If you can find a way to maintain the that lifetime value of that owner and deliver them great value for a longer period of time, that contract of whatever you bought just becomes exponentially higher. So figuring out how to manage that. So let, let's drill on drill in on the churn. You mentioned continuity. Couldn't agree more. We've seen and heard some of the studies around in any account-based paradigm. The company is XYZ, but my person is Sue. That's who I've known for five years. Mm -hmm. That's who I call when something goes wrong. That's who fixes my issue. So the company and the owner, whoever they are, whatever they're doing, Sue left, that's a problem. I didn't <clears> want to be introduced to somebody else. I didn't want to lose that relationship. Talk to me about how on the maintenance side of things, which is really one of these, the hairiest aspects of the business, arguably it is property management. It's the sexiest, by the way. <laughs> we talked at, at breakfast with your co-founder, David, that when I see folks try and get into the maintenance space and you see vendors come in and, and roll up plays and, and technology aug augmented, blah, blah, blah. I think about the challenge of maintenance and part of it's a turn on like, wow, it's a really hard problem. If you crack that nut, there's got to be a big reward behind it. But the other part of it kind of puts the fear of God in me like, wow, there must be something like incredibly challenging about this core function of the business that is not streamlined and is still kind of a dumpster <clears throat> fire. When you think about the continuity of relationships on the maintenance side, uh, let's say the maintenance vendor, uh, it, it could be the vendor, it could be the vendor coordinator. How do you think about providing a structure or a system that has more stability around the maintenance system <clears throat> specifically so that the, the people churn makes the business less vulnerable to a bunch of clients saying balls were dropped, things changed, and, and it's kind of a cluster? You know, um, one of the things that I'm a firm believer in is like ultimately – uh, capitalism is going to win in the market, which is going to be what is going to be the best service at the lowest price. Cheers. So thank you. Yeah. Hey, cheers to that. Um, so one of the things, if you think about an owner, like <clears throat> I think when we looked, I mean, we're, you know, we're crossing the quarter million units uh, on our platform. And in that, I think there's somewhere around 150,000 owners. Like it tells you the, the ratio of owners to units. And I mean, that's, that's today. Um, but the uh, that means it's onesies and twosies. It is probably the most important thing that they own. Um, I'm guessing if they own that, and it, there's people that are really smart that that go in and delve into this, but it's like they are trusting somebody to manage the most valuable thing that they own, that they're going to treat it like their own. Like trust is like the big thing that we we talk about. How do we create that? We released recently released owner an owner hub, which is the first part of a of owner trust building because maintenance, if you know that you churn because of maintenance costs, then how do we make that a trust thing to where if that AC unit goes out and it costs $6,000 to replace, it's not the property manager's fault, mm -hmm. right? Like how do you do that? Now there's, there's two ways that there's like owner trust. Like ultimately what they want is the best NOI or the best return on investment of that property. That's what they care about. They don't, as much as they would love to care about, Sue or the whoever the uh, mm -hmm. anecdotal person you mentioned, yeah. what they care about is the fact that they've got a really valuable asset and they need returns. That's what they need. Now they trusted Sue. 
Now, how do we do that and move that to more of a scale that if Sue's not there, they still trust the people because the process is good. Mm -hmm. The only way that you can demonstrate that by showing them that by working with that property management firm, stuff is going to break, but it's being managed at the absolute lowest cost possible. And so that's like a big area, like how do you surface some that is incredibly challenging. Um, I was talking with uh, one of the, the national uh, Internet of Things providers, um, and they have an easier time selling into the institutionals and a real course, problematic time course. selling the owners. And so I get that all the time. Like, well, the owners don't understand. The owners don't understand. Well, the reality is like you have to make it compelling. The institutional had education. They're spending the time researching this. But how do you make those numbers so specific to say, hey, replace this AC unit now. I know it's $5,000, but over the next six months, you're going to spend $2,000 and then have to replace the $5,000 unit. That's me looking out for you. Mm -hmm. That's trust. And so how do we get that away from being in people's heads to being an experience that mm -hmm. they have mm -hmm. is really like... I think what you have to do if you want some of these transfer of ownerships to happen without having some of these terms that they still trust in the system you've built that's going to give them the best return. I have some really complicated people dynamics there. There's the objective, you know, this is, for example, with preventative maintenance. It's kind of like as a business owner, there's the question of what is accretive? If I hire this person at $300,000 a year, will it be accretive? The answer may be yes. And then there's what I can afford, mm -hmm. cash flow. So at economies of scale, an institutional entity being able to make a major investment in IoT tech, that's one thing. For the small business owner, not for the small business owner, for the mom and pop owner that's kind of like an SMB that is just trying to stay ahead of their mortgage plus you know maintenance, et cetera, it's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. There's some nuance. There's some accessibility. Talk to me more about how to... How, how would you advise a PM to push that conversation forward in a way that's not <clears throat> indulgent or overly intellectualized? I, I think there's got to be a compelling case that you can make you can make the case that you got this property. Fantastic. They're a phenomenal investment. They're variable in cost. They're variable in experience. I can do it cheaper than you. That's what case has to be made and reinforced. You don't do it because you like me. Because if that happens, then the problem is... If Ray becomes an asshole or Ray disappears, now whatever I bought for the reason I bought is no longer there. You have to make the relationship all about we care about you and your earning potential in this property and I can do it better than you. Like, and you know, obviously it's the efficiencies of scale should be there. This is why property management, I think, has a very long-lived future is because if you sit there and continue to scale, I if I'm managing a thousand homes. If I can't find a way to do that at a lower cost and make margin and profit and vertically integrate my business with mm, mm. vendors and all the other things, and I can't make eight to 10% on that unit and have that owner be with me for five, six years at a lower cost than say somebody doing it on their own or managing too, I probably shouldn't be in business. Like I need to at least make 8%. So that's where the relationship should start off that says, trust me, I make good decisions. I make ones that's to your benefit, but it's, you're not like for liking them spending money or not. You're making it like for like that I can manage it at a lower cost than you can. You're going to run into the same problems, whether I'm managing it or you're managing it. Bro, there's so much packed up in what you just said. It relates to this disruptor conversation. The first thing it butts up against for me or that it brings up is cockroach theory. Cockroach theory is basically to say that there is a dysfunctional 
aspect or nature of the market that is inefficient and it shouldn't be there and it should go away and it mm-hmm. should get crushed over time and yet it doesn't. Right. No one is replacing the guy swinging a hammer for 20 bucks an hour anytime soon. Nope. Some flavor of that guy will <laughs> always be there and you're never going to get rid of it and it's rational behavior and he has no business model. Blah, blah, blah. But it'll always be there. Personal rapport. Business with the guy down the street who's been doing it for 40 years and has 100 units and knows every address and every owner and and packages up and mails the tax forms at the end of the year. I don't believe that that guy is going anywhere, anywhere anytime soon, even in the midst of consolidation. And when I think about the efficiency that you're talking about, it's compelling. It makes sense. Why wouldn't you leverage the economies of scale if you're managing if you're managing a thousand units as opposed to a small mom and pop owner managing ten? It's blindingly obvious, and yet we also see this promise of efficiency and leverage. That's the disruptor way, right? <clears throat> That's the promise. Yeah. Is that I'm offering single family property management for sixty nine bucks a month. Well, how am I doing it? Scale. Yeah. Disruption technology. <laughs> now, now, what what exactly are these mechanics? Right. I mean, uh, in practice, and this is the interesting dynamic. Is what I want to get your take on. In practice, it could be complete and utter bullshit, and it's actually money, large quantities and bags of money that I'm losing that allow me to offer this in the short term, but in the long term, it's going to blow up. So I think that's. Part of the complexity and certainly it's part of the market suspicion on behalf of the smaller operators that see the big dogs come in and do things that seem backwards under the promises and the auspices of efficiency with the suspicion that that's not actually what it is. It's actually a funding play. How does that dynamic play out? Is there a bubble that pops here eventually? It's it's welfare. No, I I think uh, I'm actually super bullish. Like. I tell people all the time, like, man, did I did I get blessed to basically pick this industry? Because it's like, this is going to continue to be the next one for a long time. And the reason I do see that is I I think that, well, I'll, I'll go back to your I'll go back to your question, but the kind of the welfare of you know these business owners that are running 100, 200 doors, 10 doors, they're not having anything that's able to subsidize growth, right? You know, VC comes in and be like, hey, we can lose money on these doors up to a certain point, mm-hmm. maybe even for two, three years, mm-hmm. uh, but then we'll start making money. And so we can operate at a loss. <clears throat> but the reality is, um, I I don't think there's any, somebody's got to crack the code of how you bring on and attract these individual owners from somebody else's property management firm at scale. Mm-hmm. So we tend to see it more in integrations, like they'll sit there and do acquisitions of other companies. We kind of talked about this a little earlier. That's gonna happen a lot easier until somebody figures out how to develop the strategy to go and steal owners from other people. Like it's gonna happen first. And so I think there's gonna be some steps there. We have to find some business integration solutions where how do I take that company that I brought in I've got to try and keep their owners from churning. I've got to integrate their culture and my culture. Mm -hmm. I've got to Mm -hmm. sit there and do all this work that's incredibly difficult and do it a hundred times. Like then at that point, I'd probably, I'd probably be a bit more concerned, but I don't know where, maybe where my head was headed on that. There's enablement versus replacement, right? At the end of the day, solutions like what property meld offers or what lead simple offers, that is about enablement. That's Mm -hmm. not replacing all these PMs. 
I'll tell you what, what I find off-putting, and you know, I'm probably going on a little bit of an interpersonal reign here, but when I see third parties with a lot of funding and a lot of technological promise come in the market, and what it feels like is they stumbled upon this pile of idiots and like, surely they must be able to do it better than what the market's doing it already. That's a little off-putting to, <laughs> to me. And sometimes it kind of, it, it comes off that way. And my, where I sit, I'm here about enabling the independent property management company to win and to grow and to level up and for them to be and facilitate the market change rather than it happening from these outside third party for, for, forces that come outside in. I want to see it happen inside out. That's the perspective that I take and what I choose to believe to be true. So, so I, so I agree with you. Number one, it is, it is a bit off-putting and I will, in my own humility, when I was first in here, be like, man, this is actually a great business. I'm going to get into property management. It did not take long for me to spend time with customers and be like, it's hard. God bless these people. Like it's hard. it is hard work. And, and I still haven't seen anybody that's just cracked it and said, I'm crushing it. And I've got it down. Here's my book. I'm going to be a millionaire author just on this. Like nobody's done it yet because it is a very complex and hard. It's a people business. It's the same reason we're seeing the real estate department in general, like the real estate industry. It's like, ah, you should be able to transactionally just buy a home, not yes, talk to anybody. Yes, whatever. I buy, yeah. It's not happened yet. Why? Now there's, there's steps to get there, but the, uh, the enablement, I'm completely in agreement with you. And this is where I believe, and this, you know, I had a conversation with an individual a few days ago was around this notion that I have a very strong belief that not through regulation, but instead through capitalism that drives the best service for the lowest cost, our property management industry should start gobbling up the landlord business. Because if you can't, if you can't provide 8% more value, I don't know what, I don't know what we're doing wrong. Like, but if you can, and you can make it incredibly compelling, if I'm a landlord, I don't like taking these calls. Mm. I don't like dealing with these maintenance mm. issues. I don't like dealing with, but wait, you're telling me that you can give me my same return on investment that I'm getting today and you do it all day. Like I'm in now, what we got to do as an industry is make that a compelling financial component to where we can sit there and look at somebody and, and say with a high degree of confidence, how much are you running your business? How much are you doing there? Well, this is what I can do it. This is what our customers statistically see. Mm. And then they sit there and go, you, you can do it. Like there's no way that I think somebody would choose to manage it themselves if they knew it made more money elsewhere. Wow. That's so interesting. You say that. I mean, you're talking about the self-serve DIY section of the market. Why is it the norm. Why are there so many folks in that category? Why is it not a no-brainer? There are other professional services where it's just a given that you as the consumer would work one of those vendors. DIY is not even a forethought. Here, mm -hmm. DIY is significant. And when you talk to property managers and you ask them, well, do you own real estate? Yeah, I own a couple rentals. Well, do you use a third-party management company, particularly if it's not in their market? And oftentimes there's that same tension. It's not as obvious as you would hope it would be if there really is a compelling pace, compelling case for third-party management. Obviously, going from an accidental landlord to a small-time real estate investor, three, four, five properties, to something that's you know small, light versus full-blown institutional, different motivations, different aspirations. But I think it says a lot about the industry, the degree to which peace of mind is the thing that a lot of people lead with. Mm -hmm. Peace of, yeah, of mind is great. I value it. 
uh, everybody values it to some degree. It appeals to the common humanity in us. Mm-hmm. But if if you lead with that because you don't believe that there is actually a financial economic argument to be made in favor of you managing your property, that's really interesting mm-hmm. what that says about the overall kind of economic dynamics. I hear you saying that folks should be looking for that gain and for that edge and pressing into that rather than simply defaulting to, hey, we'll take it off your plate. And there's a, what do they call It's not like survivor bias. It's something else where you forget the pain that you experience as a landlord. So one of the things that, you know, a lot of our clients that they're new be like, hey, how do we show them how much work we do? Like that alone, because you forget, be like, oh my goodness, it was painful. And then as time goes on, you sort of forget that pain. And sit there and go, oh man, you know, I could really use that that percentage and that amount. And oh man, how much was that maintenance bill? I probably could have done it cheaper. Oh man, like, and you forget all that. And you sit there and you take it back. Like it's mine now, or I'm going to go shop another one. Like that's, so that peace of mind is like fleeting. But if there's ways that you keep either, you got to find a way to keep drilling it in their head. And I, I'm saying that in like the most nice way. Like I have to be, keep reminded. Keep, keep it front of mind. <clears throat> keep it front of mind that says, hey, saving you money, saving you money, saving you money, peace of mind, peace Avoiding of mind. Avoiding headaches. Everything. Do you know how much we did here? And this part of like the owner hub is actually, and people know that like we send things on there. Um, like you can turn notifications on owners, let them know all the work you're doing with that property, with that maintenance to just keep sitting there going, do you remember? You remember you, Hey, you don't, you aren't doing this and, uh, and reminding that, but a cost is way more compelling. Money is way more compelling than peace of mind. People will take a, a shitty job because it makes more money. Like they will, they'll sacrifice emotional things because they don't think it's that big a deal. Sometimes they're willing to give that up for the short term. But monetarily, you'd be like, do I want to take on the monetary burden? Like, I, there's not a single thing I think of my life that I want to take on more of and in addition, the headache of. Nothing. So there's a difference between value delivered versus value acknowledged. Mm-hmm. You can be working in ignominy and in silence, and it's not virtuous. It's not heroic. Right. This is a this is not a 501c3, right? Mm-hmm. We should expect that if you're adding meaningful value, that it's a benefit to the consumer for you to communicate and acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And at the point of acknowledgement, that is when you as the benefit as the business owner get benefit. When it's understood, when it's appreciated, that's mm-hmm. when it's leverageable. There's a flip side to this, Ray. There's folks that would say more disclosure, more transparency. It conditions the owner to think that they're in control. Mm-hmm. They're calling the shots. They they come to me as the professional. Yep. I have the answers. I don't need to give them all this information because it implies that somehow I'm looking for their permission or or feedback. How do you how would you speak to that side of the equation? You know, I'm trying to think through of like something that somebody that everybody updates me on and I don't care and it's meaningful. So the first thing that popped in my mind is a bank you ever check your monthly statements? No, I don't either. Like, and, and the reason is I, the bank is built to trust that I know that that money is always there and I know it's doing what it's supposed to. And it doesn't disappear. I remember a day when I used to balance the checkbook. You remember that? Yeah. It's like, I need to double check, make sure the bank is, <laughs> is has done their math correctly. Like, and it's kind of ridiculous, but that's the thing. They keep giving more and more insight and information, but really the core thing is, do I trust they're doing things correctly? and the way they're supposed to. So 
how that comes about is is really the TBD. I think you know property managers know best on on how to do this, but it's ultimately if you can make them trust that you're getting them the maximum return on that property, whatever that is, like that's what's going to make them stay and that's what's going to make them ask less questions. They're going to trust you and say you've got it. Like I give an example. I mean, this is just kind of my co-founder when we were early on. Dude is like one of the hardest working people in the world I know. And we had so much trust. I never asked him if it could be done faster. I knew it was being done at the maximum speed possible. Mm. And if you think about that relationship, and man, trust has been a theme today, I guess. But um, if you think about that, it's like, how do I build trust to where they don't feel like they have to ask? And so that's the question mark. But if they trust you, then it's going to be like, all right, I guess it's $4,000. I trust you. Sucks, but I trust you. Oh, so this is Continuum. an interesting thought. This is leveraging the information kind of as a proxy, not providing every data point because it is necessary in order to justify what you do, but assuming that in aggregate, the transparency and the information becomes that background noise and the it's a, it's a tangible demonstration of trust. Mm -hmm. Like if you couldn't trust me, I wouldn't be sending you all these updates. I wouldn't be giving you right. all this information. So to that extent, I can see how that kind of resolves the conflict. That's that's interesting. Right. Being that we're both in the software business, knowing that change management, organizational shift and adoption of technology is a big part of what we deal with. I want to talk a little bit about what you've experienced in trying to facilitate change management as a necessity in your case for the adoption of software. In my case, it's everything from software to consulting. So many interesting things come up in seeing what the real issue actually is. Let me give you an example. I find, let's say on the profit coach side of things, where we're having a financial conversation and the auspices here is we're trying to help the business owner make more money. So we come up with a forecast and a spreadsheet and we demonstrate an issue or an opportunity. Let's say it's uh, revenue optimization, getting the mm -hmm. revenue per unit from 185 to 225. And we agree that this is what needs to be done. Here's the course of action. These are these specific paths we're going to pursue. Six weeks later, follow-up, check-in, nothing got done. We reaffirm, same opportunity, underlying dynamics haven't changed. Another meeting, six weeks later, nothing's changed. At some point, it becomes clear, this is not a finance. This is not a spreadsheet issue. This is a interpersonal, in-business mechanical issue. And the specific thing I want to get your take on is when team members get in the way of the vision. When you have somebody that the company is has either outgrown or somebody that was never a fit, what are some of the ways that you see that express itself in terms of the story that the owner has? Because what I find is that there's a such a variety of interesting stories and uh, irrational behavioral dynamics where the owner is discontent about the trajectory of the way something that is functioning, and yet they don't feel empowered to make the necessary change that clearly and obviously needs to happen. What's been your experience? Give me some flavors of some of, some of the stories and some of the insights that you've helped people work through, knowing that this is the real inner game of entrepreneurship. It's not what's outside, but what's internal. So, so we're talking the owner of the property management company though? Correct. Okay. They see a change that needs to be made. They just, they're not executing them. <clears throat> so one of the first things is to validate it's actually a real 
painful problem that they need to fix. Like, I think one of the things like early on in the company, like why do people get in property mode? Efficiency, transparency, communication. Like we would see that on the notes all the time. Like, what does that mean to them? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, there's great stories that you see is like, you know, they've, they've either got an employee that's about to leave or they're sitting there, have somebody going on maternity leave, or maybe they had something fall through the cracks and it cost $20,000. Like find that story that keeps them up at night. Like you need to find the thing that they really want to change. Like once you get that nugget, then you become their advocate together Mm -hmm. to sit there and how do you make change in the organization? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think they call it like the, the, the competency is communication. How do you communicate the same thing differently to different people? It's like me in an organization where I go, if I talk to the developers about something, it's like, I, I have to change the way that I communicate with them because if I'm talking to them about <clears throat> something that marketing's really excited about and, you know, and how they're excited about it, it it's not going to land. So it's really looking at your messaging of who's the champion in the organization, who's going to be the one to push it through and like really identifying who the roadblocks are and how do you make it about them? Enrolling people. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, the big thing is, so say, say the owner sits there and goes, you know, like we keep adding people, our performance isn't improving. I'm like really frustrated. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can grow my business because I don't feel like I can, I, I can't with good conscience, like I'm already maxed my, out. Yeah. I'm already maxed out and I've already added people. And so then it comes down to how do we talk to the maintenance coordinator that, listen, I know you're maxed out. Like I know you're there. You don't have time to do X, Y, and Z because you're doing this stuff. How, if, if I was to free up 30% of the day, what would you be working on? Like, and I'm giving a very, very specific example, but it's like this owner is trying to figure out this major problem. And I'm like, I'm looking at it in you and saying, how do, like, what would you do if you had 30% of your day back? And if they get bought in on them to them, their problem is they want 30% of their day back. Now we're all marching in the same direction. We're doing the same thing. We're implementing property mail. Um, I say 30%, 60%. I got to say that that does feel like kind of the... (laughs) the lower bar, easier use case. I think that's that's great advice. Okay. Everybody can learn from that. If we, let's just in that case, step up from that bar. So they see how they're gonna get 30%. Um, and then come to find out this person is worried about job security. Mm. They're trying to replace me. That's what these mother <laughs> cluckers are trying to replace me with uh. software, getting clever. I've been working here and now this software is gonna make my job obsolete. That's, that's a different conversation when people yeah. feel threatened in their their utility or they don't want to give up control you see that they're mm. they have some motivation to sabotage the process and oftentimes what it gets reduced down to is oh the software didn't work yeah maintenance vendors don't want to use it, it it's broken it, it doesn't yeah. work we, we can't and, and that could be the case yeah certainly there's crappy software yeah. certainly that's how we, how would you encourage an owner who as we talked about at breakfast is dealing with so many technology solutions that they cannot be the person that steps in, learns them all, adjudicates efficacy. Yep. They have to delegate down to the organization. How how would you encourage an owner to suss out when it's the solution, when it's the vendor mm. versus when it's an internal unwillingness to adopt it for some other <clears throat> irrational reason? So, so yeah, I'm tracking what you're saying. So let's just even take, you know, the, our own organization here. Like, the, uh, you know, if we're running through something and I'm like, we got to do this, but how do I get somebody else bought in on it without basically mandating it? So right, that way they, right. they own the outcome. Um, one of the things that I've seen that I've seen, it's all about like Intel, like, you know, your own people, like, what do they hate? 
right? If you're sitting there trying to drive and say, I want you to like 75% of your job, what is the stuff that we need to get rid of? Mm -hmm. Like, and then sitting there going, if you've got this thing in your head, it's like prop property meld, like you got it in the back of your mind, property meld is what I want. What stuff do you want to get rid of? Now, you know your person because they complain about the same things. I'm sick and tired of babysitting these people. I'm sick and tired of following up. I always feel like I get angry calls from residents. Mm -hmm. You want to get rid of that? Okay. Is there something we can do and is our current system working? Like, I know like you're a smart person. You're doing it like, I've tried everything. I've tried maxing this out. Okay. Can we take a look at a couple of different options here? All right. Which one makes the most sense to you? Like there's a process of getting somebody like bought in that involves them acknowledging their problem and them owning how they're going to solve it, but it's from the likeness of them. Now, if it's about, you know, they're sitting there going, you know, we're going to go from four coordinators to three. It's a challenge. But um, the big thing as an organization is actually to paint a path that I guarantee there's a place that that person can go make mo money for that company. Finding those out and creating that pathway that says, hey, if we get this to succeed, then I can move you to the next place that you want to go that makes money. So it's like painting the path forward that is not like there's no home for you. Once this happens, it's your next place is already defined. Um, you know, that, and that's a, that's a high bar if they're a team player and if they want that. <clears throat> but if they dig their heels in and they sabotage the process, which which happens <clears throat> from time to time. You know, one thing that I've I've encouraged sometimes, you know, and, and I don't do much much for the sales much anymore. One thing I was kind of encouraged is like, can you give your team a KPI that they are struggling to hit right now and say, I need this number to be better. You tell me how you're going to do it. Mm. Like putting the ownership back on them to say you. And so when they walk in that one-on-one -on -one with that, uh, the owner mm -hmm. and the owner sits there and go, where are we at on this number? And this number is not good. Like, well, what are you doing about it? There's so many weeks. Then you start sitting there applying the heat and be like, all right, we got to make a lot more drastic changes. Incremental ain't working. Mm -hmm. Like this is the expectation of this role is to deliver that. Mm -hmm. And so then it's about putting them about the results driven and then putting the tooling in front of them that they might sit there and breathe life and say, if I do this, then maybe I'll actually hit these numbers I'm supposed to hit, but actually making it about KPIs that they have to do. And I think we can just kind of end it with just talking about, do you rescue your leaders? Is that a habit that you find yourself in that you get this sense of, fulfillment and meaning and significance like you know what i didn't want to do it but i rolled up my sleeves and i rescued my leader <sighs> i gave him a plan i gave him a number and they're saying they can't hit it when you butt up against i can't do it or i don't know how it can feel cruel and it is cruel to say too bad mm -hmm. but when you can't what you can say at that point is either okay I'm going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to step in. I'm going to figure it out. Or you can say, you know, I understand. And I may have the wrong person in this role. You may not. This may be indicative of the fact that you're not cut out for this role. Because when you say that, you lay down the gauntlet and you raise the stakes. And you provide someone an opportunity to be called up to a level of performance and ability mm -hmm. that they haven't had. Or... To sit in this idea that I don't know how. Mm -hmm. And the idea that how is this like disqualifying circumstances as an entrepreneur, it's it's fantastical. Like, how could you think the fact that you don't know how to do something means that it's not possible? Mm -hmm. And given that I don't know how 
and you're bringing it to me, the implication is that neither of us knows how to do it, but you want me to do it rather than you. Mm-hmm. Let's end it there, man. What's your, what's your take on like, when do you rescue a leader that is sincere? Mm-hmm. They want help. They're trying, but their but their story is that they just don't know how. So I, uh, so we talked about, you know, earlier, um, about trust. It's like a foundational element that you have to have before you can build on. Like I've realized I've tried to add value to my team members before we built trust. And it was like, why are you doing this? Like, and it didn't get taken. So, so limiting blast radius to team members, giving them the KPI, giving them the number, allowing them to fail in a blast radius that is acceptable for the company is actually when I feel like there's awesome opportunity to move a team member. Like that is when they will really sit there and go, okay, I've exhausted what I know how to do. I've, I'm, I'm out, I'm out of ideas. That is the time at which, you know, some, some team members kind of can take to that. Uh, But that's where I sit there and go, I love the first or maybe second opportunity to, you call it saving. I, I call it jumping shoulder to shoulder in the ditch where it's like, I'm willing to get in here with you. Like, let's do this. I will work late with you. I will sit there and do what it takes to do with you because we're going to build that trust. And you're going to know by the end of that, that I'm on your team. With you versus for you. With you. With you. Yeah. For you is pointless. I'm not interested in for you, but with you. And then once I hop in with you and can help, if I have to keep doing that, that probably is indicative of, of more of a personnel issue, or maybe we're not equipping that person correctly or can't. Um, but I actually love those moments, um, to do that with, and it's amazing what happens I, that, that, that can do. But, um, if it does happen too much, it's like, all right, maybe, uh, right person, wrong seat. Hmm. Final question of the interview, Ray Hessman, if you weren't running property meld, what would you be doing? Gosh, dang it, man. This is so much my life. You know, I am, uh, I, uh, I am infatuated with the maintenance game. I, I don't know what it Cop is. Cop out. No, Give I, me something. I, I would be, I'd probably be coaching. I'd probably be coaching other startups. I've had phenomenal mentors and they've had such an amazing impact on my lives. And subsequently the, the lives of people underneath me, uh, they've had impact in the industry. Like, you think about a coach that has potentially impacted me in a way that's allowed our company to grow scale and yeah. impact, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. That one person could have done that through, through, through. So I think that's very, um, that's very compelling. You say cop out, but I, I, I don't, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to leave, but I, I do love the aspect of like business and I've gotten infatuated with people and organizations and strategy and like, how do you move people through people? Amen. Amen. It's about the, it's about the human experience. Yeah. It's not about making a buck. The, the money follows the meaning and the degree to which you mm. lean into that and the yeah. transformative process of what this whole thing is made up to be. This is great, man. And I'm, I'm so thrilled we were able to make this happen. I am ready. Do, do you want me to come back in two weeks? <laughs> we, we, we gotta, we'll put it on the calendar. Well, guys, thanks for watching. For those of you at home, um, you can always check out Ray at what's the best way for them for folks to get in touch or learn more about property meld if they if they don't already know, which is highly unlikely. But if yeah, if uh, so, just www.propertymeld.com, um, and you can you can talk to one of us uh, right there. We got like one click away from talking to us. So, anyways, there's a lot of information there. But yeah, 
looking forward to seeing this posted and looking forward to seeing all the new people I get to meet. As always, until next time, see you on the flip side.